0: cards from a dying world the podcast for more than a decade i've reviewed over 1000 books that are mostly science fiction horror and bizarro this feed will feature bonus audio i have produced over the years as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what i've read each month plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction thanks for listening All right, welcome to the Postcards from a Dying World podcast where we nerd out on the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of writing horror fiction. And I am so honored to have the man who killed Captain Kirk with us today, Brandon Braga. Um, I am a huge fan of his work going far back, but he's mostly known for writing science fiction. But the cool thing is, is that Brandon is a horror nerd just like you and me and he likes to read horror fiction and that's what led him to be the perfect person to work with clive barker on the new hulu film books of blood and that's what we're going to be talking about today is putting the books of blood up on the lift and looking at the engine and seeing all the parts so um now you have delved into horror fiction especially with salem which was uh super underrated Um, And I know your screenwriting partner with this is somebody you worked with on Salem, but let me go back to how you got into horror fiction and where your horror fiction love started.
1: Well, that's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My earliest memories of horror are as a young kid, um, seeing um, a trailer, a coming attraction on television for tales from the crypt and insisting that my mother take it, take me to it. This was in like 1971. So I was, you know, six years old or something ridiculous and she took me It's probably a huge mistake because though I haven't seen the movie since that time. I remember the traumas of it so vividly Um, Like the guy being chased by German shepherds and being caught Uh, in a corridor, a tight corridor lined with razor blades on either side. Um, I don't remember the story, but I remember how I felt, the exhilaration I felt seeing it. Um, I also remember the the television commercial for Suspiria and a woman combing her hair and turning to camera and it's a a skull. I remember, obviously horror movies were a huge early influence. Uh, I don't think my reading uh, horror really kicked in until I read my first Stephen King novel, which was um, The Shining. Mm-hmm. And uh, another very formative book called Cold Moon Over Babylon by Michael McDowell. Uh, a really, real, uh, a highly, I don't want to say underrated, under the radar. Well, he's both ind-
0: known for having co-written Beetlejuice. Yeah, right?
1: but his novels are fantastic. Yeah, they are and uh he died very young and it's a shame because he, he really got me into horror. those were just a couple novels that i read but um i was lucky to grow up in the era the era of um horror paperback toward fiction and uh you know there's a book that you probably have called um paperbacks from hell mm-hmm. which is yeah. just those were the books that on the counts. shelves at the drugstore or whatnot when i was growing up
0: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and the I, i'm old enough to remember those being on the shelves too and um but for me one of the early formative writers uh stephen king as well but um i have my copy of volume one oh, of yeah blood with me <laughs> as you can see it's very loved this was brand new when i bought it in eighth grade i was way too young to be reading clive barker but <laughs> It is the reason why we are sitting here doing this interview today. Yeah,
1: that's the copy I had too. That's exact. I still have mine somewhere.
0: With these insane mess. Yeah, Yeah. I went to um, I went to a workshop, uh, the Borderlands workshop, and um, Ginger Buchanan, who was the editor of this series, uh, the American editor, um, was there teaching, and I got a chance to talk to her a little bit, and um, she said she's still. Hurts over these covers. I think. <laughs> well, they
1: weren't the greatest covers, right? You know,
0: right. It didn't, I, 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 it didn't
1: matter. It didn't matter. The, I never was a fan. Still, I'm not a fan of photograph-oriented uh, covers. I like the paintings, you know, which is itself its own kind of subgenre: the paint, the horror novel paintings, which Paperbacks from Hell gets into. Um, but yeah, that was my. I read those. Uh, in 1985 i guess um and i was like 20 years old and um though the books of blood really you know as someone once said it would have been like the beatles releasing all of their albums on the same day i mean here you had these these six volumes of stories that were all at once it was amazing they were amazing
0: yeah and this this first book right here just in this book alone, it has the midnight meat train and in in the city in the hills.
1: And pig blood blues.
0: And pig blood blues, which are all revolutionary horror fiction stories that, that shook up the genre. But I would say, especially in the city in the hills, which um, like the body politic took the weird to a level that nobody else was doing.
1: Right, yeah. and, and both of those stories, incidentally, the Body Politic, of course, being about the hands taking over the world, uh, are almost unfilmable. Like H.P. Lovecraft, yeah. you have yeah. to read it to get it.
0: Yeah, and they tried with Body Politic, and yeah, and because so much of that that story is built on the dread and the the uh, paranoia of loss of control, so that's kind of one of one of the reasons why. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that story is unfilmable, you're right. Um, so, so getting back in, into like your discovery of Clive and reading those as a young person, would you say that, because um, you started off really succeeding early in science fiction, but um, what kind of influence did having read all this horror fiction have on you as a writer when you were starting out? Well,
1: I was a I wasn't a Star Trek guy. Um, I was a Twilight Zone guy, uh, and I've t- told the anecdote before that in school, in in middle school, there were the this, uh, this Trek nerds, the horror nerds, and the fantasy Dungeons and Dragons nerds, and we all thought the other were nerds, but that we were cool, <laughs> but we were all nerds, and, um, you know, when I started My first writing job was on Star Trek, the next generation. Um, And um, it was a terrifying prospect because I didn't know the show that well. And it was just so sophisticated and the, my mentor, Michael Pillar, I didn't know how he was doing, they were doing what they were doing. It, It seemed like magic to me that they could just come up with stuff. Um, but the only way I could approach the show that I could understand was as an anthology Twilight Zone type show. Because I knew the show could accommodate kind of any kind of storytelling and any genre and was in essence an anthology show in that every week was a standalone story with recurring characters. So I approached, I brought the only sensibilities I knew which were kind of weird fiction sensibilities. So a lot of my episodes um particularly on next generation, tended to be the high concept strange ones or and sometimes scary ones. Because yeah. that's what I knew, that's what I knew. You know, I I was I couldn't write the political stories or the deep, you know, character-oriented stories. My stories are generally a little on the shallow but interesting side conceptually.
0: And I think that's why you and Ron Moore made such a great team for so long is that he yes. different sensibilities. Yeah. Oh yeah,
1: it's such a, a great partnership, mostly Ron's talent, not mine. And I, so that's how, you know, so a lot of my Next Gen episodes were, uh, could be categorized as horror. Though science fiction and horror really are first cousins um, in that they're conceptually driven and they're underappreciated, or certainly were for a very long time and um, very influential. And look, what's the the grandmother of them all? Frankenstein, a science fiction horror piece.
0: Well, one of the reasons why I think the Berman era of Star Trek produced so many great writers that have gone on to do great work outside of Star Trek is that you guys are clearly fans and totally okay with being fans. And one of the things that I think, that I think of when it comes to your working with Clive Barker is that, and I saw in one at one other interview, you talked about how you went to a signing for Clive's very early on. And, um, you know, you, I, I'm sure you kind of approached this. It's almost impossible, to, I would think as a writer to, and I've had the chance to meet Clive myself too at the 2006 Graham Stoker Awards. They put all the vegetarians together <laughs> and, and so, uh, um, and I, and I want to try to I'll try to make this short, but I had a really great Clive experience myself, whereas, cause at the time I, I, I teach kids with autism as my day job and I was reading the thief of always to one of my students and Clive was so touched when I told him <laughs> the story that he insisted that I send him a picture, um, You know, me reading this with my students, I had to get permission from the parents and and I sent a picture and he was really nice to he wrote me back and told me that he had hung the picture in one of his painting studios. And um, what I realized at that moment was that one of the reasons why I connected to Clive so many all over all those many years is he's just a really great person. And it comes through in the fiction and he really does. Uh, appreciate when people professionally come to him as fans, he understands that you can be both, right? You can be professional and, and you can be a fan. So, and, and I learned that there, but I also met him at a, a signing one time before that and at, at a mall in Orange County, and there were only four people at the signing. And what was cool was it was a year later that I was at the Stoker Awards and he remembered our conversation. And I was so, touched that that he remembered our conversation um tell me about working with clive like what is you know because you guys you how did you and then we can get into how this project started because i'm sure that's what happened or did you meet clive long before you you did well not- i met
1: well look i in 1985 or 86 somewhere around there Uh, I went to what was his very first American book signing, which was at the Change of Harvard bookstore in Santa Monica. And I stood in line for three hours. I was the eighth person in line. It was a very long line down the block, hundreds of people. Um, And he, I spent whatever, I think I worked in a mail room at a publishing house at the time. And I splurged and bought that giant, uh, a very large volume with all the st- stories collected and he drew a picture. I still have it. And you know, I remember meeting him vividly. He does not remember me, of course. <laughs> but uh you know, we were I always thought Books of Blood would make a great anthology series. And I had a, f- a mutual friend named Brian Woodin who uh, was an executive at Paramount Pictures, a movie executive that I met and he made a, an introduction to Clive. And um, I didn't meet Clive in person for several years, but had phone conversations with him about what I wanted to do with Books of Blood initially as a TV anthology, which no one was doing at that time. And then Black Mirror came out. Right. Black Mirror came out and suddenly it was... It, it was okay to do anthologies. Yeah. It was okay to do and... Um, so to make a long story short, uh, I had this percolating for since I read the books, you know, and saw the different movies come out, uh, the the great ones like Hellraiser and the not great ones like Rawhead Rex. Right. Um, and but always held out hope because the the uh, the title books of blood had not been used. Now it would would be used. For a movie called *The Book of Blood* hmm. uh, in England, it came out in 2009 or some somewhere around there. But Clive bequeathed these that title to me. He, he, you know, he's like, I never bequeathed isn't really the right word, but um, he he's, <laughs> he good. he said uh, he was never going to give up the title *Books of Blood*, but for this project, he thought he would, and we started a, a really close collaboration. It started over the phone and then eventually became every Tuesdays at three o'clock, we get together. We're still doing it. I have my next one's Tuesday at three where we sit together now, obviously not, but I just talk for two or three hours. And I've recorded most of the conversations with his permission. And I, they're fascinating, deep conversations about horror and literature and movies. I hope one day to, He'll let me publish them because it's kind of like a Truffaut Hitchcock situation, where you have this, and I'm not Truffaut. I'm just it's the analogy being a fan, a super fan, trying to aspiring to do work like his, talking to the master, and they're great conversations. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. I have no idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, how it started, but. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious that um, you have, a, well, I didn't know that you were doing these meet, these meetings every week. That, that's really phenomenal and just an amazing chance to get down and and really get to learn from from a master. That's, you know, I take advantage of every opportunity, whether it's through the podcast or through the friendships that I have. When I meet and talk to other writers, I try to have these nuts and bolts conversations because I feel like eventually that it shows up in the work that you're doing and you know you never know where it's where it's going to pay off years later right that you're stuck in a corner with a writing project and maybe you don't know how to solve something whether it's in the outlining process or the writing process and that kernel of truth that you got from this friendship or this conversation you know can can pay off later it's 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 really important so that's great that you you had a chance to do this um and i and i think the idea of the books of blood as an anthology um show is it's almost too obvious that it's crazy that no one else (laughs) like realized that that should be done um but i'm glad that we're here at this point um but yeah i mean between the six volumes of uh, the Books of Blood, um, there's so much invention. There's so much um, craziness. But what, what's exciting for me is that you got to do two new stories. So we'll get to that in a little bit. I wonder if we could go back a little bit to talk about a couple of the short stories that were particular game changers for you. I already mentioned for me, I mean, the first book, it's Midnight Me Train and In the City and the Hills. Book two, it's Dread and then when you get further on, it's the body politic in, uh, I believe it was four, and then you have the forbidden, which became Candyman. These are all revolutionary pieces of horror fiction. I'm wondering if there's ones that had a huge impact on you, um, like well, stories that, that yeah. you can come back to. I
1: mean, look, In the Hills the Cities is one of the great pieces of uncanny, weird fiction. Um, of all time but the ones that scared me were pig blood blues and dread those were those i remember being scary the scariest and of course i don't know if there's any truth to this but dread to me seemed to be ripped off by the saw movies like dread dread was hugely influential um clearly um i shouldn't say ripped off that's not fair because i don't know that um the You know, body politic always stuck with me. Um, One of my favorite, uh, and I don't remember what volume it's in, was um, The Life of Death. Hmm. The woman with cancer who unearths a plague pit in London, which incidentally is Clive's favorite, Books of Blood story. Um, And uh, he really wants to adapt that one. Uh, of course you 'd have to film it in england so i 'm not sure how that would happen but um you know I was attracted to the psychological uh stor- that stories like uh the Life of death, which is a very nuanced uh story it's very it's subtle it it has you know horrific elements in a and a very high concept, which is these plague pits thousands of them underneath London that a lot of people don't even know are there with hundreds of thousands of bodies and um in this case, the plague is unleashed uh, again. Um, I was attracted to, you know, even Pig Blood Blues, which is about a, a, a presumed haunted, four hundred pound haunted pig who eats pedophiles. Um, is almost it's, or or is it? Is uh, you know, it's a very nuanced story. So those, I was attracted to those kinds of stories. Well, like a lot of a lot of people think Clyde Barker and understandably they think hellraiser they think splatterpunk they think body horror they think uh, pinhead but he was so much more than that his stories are so much more diverse
0: well i think personally like even though the books of blood to me are the most pure as far as the horror goes i'm a huge fan of the books of the art the everville and the great and secret show i I almost think of him as, I almost, the term dark fant- fantastique fits him better than pretty much anybody. Yeah, right.
1: He's, he's more like Ray, to me, so that's my opinion. He's more like Ray Bradbury than he is Stephen King.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, I think of a book like Something Wicked This Way Comes, and it's, and Bar- it's very Barkerian, or, or the Great and Secret Show is very Bradbury. You know, it's, and then, if you talk in talking to clive i was surprised to hear that he doesn't consider himself to be a horror writer that the books of blood was his horror and once he'd written them he he was done with horror he was moving on to other things and i was kind of stunned to hear that um i hadn't considered that but because my first clive exposure was books of blood to some people it's thief of always Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and that was a huge influence in their life you know it's so it's He's not just Books of Blood.
0: Yeah, and um, they're, you know, it's funny because I grew up in punk rock and, you know, the difference between the stage and, and the musicians and the, the fans is like nothing. So growing up, like meeting your heroes or your idols wasn't like a real big deal. Like, because it was like, I grew up, you know, around the bands, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But, but the, that one weekend where I met Richard Matheson and Clive Barker in the same weekend. <laughs> um, Richard Matheson and Clive Barker, are like the only two times where I I was just, I like wanted to get on my knees and say, I'm not worthy. You know? Oh yeah,
1: um, I know, I know.
0: And, and, and I can imagine that having these conversations all the time with Clive, that you probably have those moments routinely in the middle of conversations where he'll just say a nugget or something where you're just like, oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, it's 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 you know he encourages me to not to set aside my fandom and just be a collaborator but you know it's almost impossible
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it just it just is
0: <laughs> all right enough of all that stuff let's get into the craft of writing let's get into the nuts and bolts of sitting down as Oliver Stone would say, ass plus chair equals writing. <laughs> We're going to get into those moments because um, that's what we do around here. And I'm really excited to do this. Now, a lot of this does come from the collaboration process of these conversations. So from the beginning, you, you I'm sure you came to Clive and said, this is how I want to do an, an anthology movie or show. And like, you know. Like, how did you bring in Adam Simon to, to work with this? And what was the process of getting the ball rolling?
1: The process was uh, me sitting with Clive and talking about what stories we wanted to do, uh, what stories had been optioned by this uh, studio at the time was Fox. This was before Disney bought it. <laughs> it's kind of funny, the idea of Disney doing what's Clive so Parker stories. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what's happening. That's what's happened. Well, uh, I
0: almost did Abirat back in the day yeah
1: and and by the way you know a, a good friend of mine that is the, that's their book that they read as a child and i and um this friend of mine had gave me their dog-eared copy and said will you have him sign this you know this they read it when they were 11 and this was their this they they, they had never read books of blood anyway <laughs> uh what happened very quickly once clive and i started talking is that he had a whole bunch of other uh, story ideas, books of blood, horror story ideas. Mm -hmm. And he was, and I think I can speak for what happened and he'd be comfortable with it. He was less interested in talking about these stories he'd written over 30 years ago. Right. Which I can totally understand. You know, it's like talking about Star Trek episodes that I wrote wrote 30 years ago. I'm, I'm happy to talk about them, but I'm more interested in new things that I'm thinking about. As was he. And some of these ideas, I mean, I have a list of probably 75 concepts, some more fleshed out than others, that I just realized, well, we need to do we need to do redo the stories that were that should be redone. We should do pig blood blues, we should do in the Hills, the Cities at some point when we're ready. <laughs> Uh, this was when it was a tv show yeah but we should do some of these new stories because he's in he's more engaged with that and I knew that as a fan I would be interested in seeing some new stuff you know it's almost like if volume seven of books of blood came out you know and so as a tv show we had we kind of came up with all the stories we wanted to do uh Clive was busy you know he's writing a couple different novels i think i was uh in santa fe new mexico prepping um a tv show called cosmos the third season of cosmos
0: yeah i'm a huge astronomy nerd too so like okay (laughs) so (laughs) So jealous of you working on cosmos
1: (laughs) i had um i enlisted my buddy adam simon who we did salem together and um (laughs) We started developing the stories in more detail and putting together um a series overview document and a couple of scripts and and um i needed a writer to work with mm-hmm. um while i was doing this other project as well as the orville too um so uh and we just developed it and we developed um the show and we developed a couple of scripts and hulu decided they wanted to do uh, an anthology film mm-hmm. and possibly a series of them um and i knew the moment they suggested that that it was the better version of the show at least at that time because some of these stories weren't really fleshing out to be an hour <laughs> you know they were right. kind of like it's it and so it then evolved into, um, it was a matter of picking the stories to put into the movie. The Book of Blood, obviously, is the origin story of the book. Um, and all I did there was I took his, Barker's story, which is quite short. It's really a, a set piece more than a story.
0: Yeah, I reread it yesterday for for, for doing this because I, I wanted to think about what your process of, And we'll get into nitty-gritty on that story in a little bit. But... Um, what i what i think is interesting too is that gives that kind of a night gallery feel too because that not worrying about the amount of time that's involved because you're serving an overarching you know film instead of you know i have to fill out this hour with this story i think um, was a good good decision um so you you brought in adam you were spitballing um and I w- so the screenplay, I think, has a couple magic tricks in it that I'm really impressed with. Um, this may sound like a, a, a really long. I, I wrote a very long question for this, so I'm gonna <laughs> read but um, it, it's almost like a series of magic tricks. And the way you hide your cards, I'm afraid some viewers are just missing. Especially a lot of people today watch movies with their phones in their hands, and and they're not going to get a lot of the subtext that you're operating on. But you sub, you subvert the standard anthology trope of the introduction story being at the beginning. Um, and the, the subtle sleight of hand there is that the first opening scene looks like an introductory wraparound, but it's not. That's a trick, <laughs> right? Which is setting up, which ends up setting up the third story, and so you're weaving all these storylines in and out. That had that um, is a really complicated way to set up the anthology. But what's cool is I've never seen it before; it's totally original, <laughs> right? And that's the thing that when when my wife and I were watching the movie, that I kind of turned to her and said. At first I, I didn't get it, but then once I got it, I was like, wow, that's really neat. <laughs> that's the way <laughs> that's the way they did it. Because the actual Books of Blood story is the second story, right? In yeah. in the arch. And to do that is a neat magic trick because it launches six books here, but it's right in the middle. And so at first I admit I was when I was saw the opening scene, I'm like, well, that's not the book of blood the books of blood. And then when when it came around I'm like, ah, I see what he's doing. I see what they're doing. And that was very impressive. So, that structure, that weaving structure, was that something you guys talked about from the very beginning? It was a it the structure
1: was it was definitely for me a lot of ass in chair and a lot of pacing. Um I knew that the title story would be one of the stories. And in fact, we had a script for that Mm. um, that was much more traditional in in its storytelling. It was very linear. And um, I changed it to be a story within a story within a story. If you look at just the Book of Blood story, it's Mary telling a story. And we flash back to that story but we even do flashbacks within that flashback mm-hmm. and it's kind of a miracle that it all hangs together and isn't confusing you know right. at least it wasn't to me um wasn't but it able, for me too uh but and then there were two other story ideas that that originated with clive and one was the jenna story with the bodies in the wall uh, which is based on a a, a case and from the 1960s about um was it? There's a married couple uh, that were killing and burying bodies and body parts in their walls and floor. Um, I can't remember their name, but Clive was really struck by that as a young man. And um, that's how that story originated. And then we'll,
0: we'll, dr- we'll drill down on that story. Yeah, okay, sorry.
1: Anyway, the structure was sitting down and figuring out how to the best way to take the th- the the framing device story, the haunted neighborhood gangster story and laying it all out. And I didn't want to do the book of blood first. I mean, I knew that Um, it just seemed too obvious. And I knew I wanted the ending to be what the ending of the movie is, which was the most, you know, what's the most powerful ending this thing has. And I think that one where Jenna goes back to the house was it, it it was tricky to structure and took a lot of, um, I actually went out of town. To uh, a resort I go to in uh, Palos Verdes, and it's just kind of my writing place for this movie. And I just sat and had to figure it out. And and Mm. and you know, if I've said this before, I really looked at Pulp Fiction as my inspiration for the structure because
0: Mm. that's a
1: really successful anthology film. Yeah, and and because I
0: didn't even realize it is an anthology.
1: Oh, it's very much an anthology film, and that's the thing about it. I mean, books of blood is much more a pronounced anthology film. But if you look at Pulp Fiction, its its structure is one of the most brilliant anthological structures ever, if not the most brilliant film structures, because the stories are, they touch each other, they cross pollinate, but not in a way that you that they call attention to themselves. It's just fluid. And I that's more of what I looked at.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't see that, but now, now that you're mentioning it, it's, it's very obvious. Um, yeah, I mean, I admit I did the same thing in my short story collection, amazing punk stories. I, I did a framing re- a story at the beginning, and then I tied it to the, to the novella that ended it, because that's just what, you know, you think you're supposed to do with anthologies and, and, you know, as I was, um, It's funny because as I was writing my questions for this, I looked at that book on on my shelf and I thought to myself, man, I really wish I had thought of something like this where it was all interweaving. And so I had a moment of writer jealousy there, um, which is always, um, I love anytime um, I read a book or see a movie where I'm jealous of the writer, um, I think um, they've done good work. I uh, like Steve Brand Jones's new novel, the The Only Good Indians. I just I told him uh, when I first talked to him that I was like I see with jealousy on every page of that book.
1: <laughs> your your review of the book was interesting. It was a the most hum, most humble book review I've ever read. It's just like <laughs> I don't pretend to understand everything about this book, and I but I'm going to write the review anyway. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, interviewing him was interesting because he told me it was funny because at one point he said, well, I just wanted to write a Friday the 13th movie, but I don't have the rights to Jason. So I made up my own. And it's funny because I was looking for and I told him (laughs) I was looking for all these levels and he's like, I just wanted to write a serial killer. (laughs)
1: That's so funny.
0: And uh, he ended up with a lot of other levels. But, you know, Anyways, I I uh I could go on about that book for a while too. I haven't read it yet. Oh well.
1: I just ready. read *Night of the Mannequins* though.
0: Oh, I haven't read that yet, so you got me beat on that. But uh, I'm I'm reading it soon. Um, but *Only Good Indian* is is incredible, um, and uh, the structure is really amazing, on that one too. All right. Um. So it's so. We'll get so the introductory story in the books of blood. We'll we'll get into more nitty gritty of that when we get around to it being the second story. But the story of Jenna um, is effectively kind of the A story, if there really is one, or the first story. Yep. Yep. Um, and my favorite aspects of storytelling are always parallels and reversals. Like that's to me, everything is parallels and reversals. And I think that's a Shane Black thing. I think I learned that from him. But um, but the key to this story is that it hits both a parallel and a reversal, because Jenna has this disorder where she is terrified or horrified by like loud sounds, chewing sounds, those kinds of things. And so the chewing is very important because um, it, it's a very good example of, of how she is affected by this. And so once you get to the horror aspect where she's at the house with this married couple that that put people in the walls, like it's such a great parallel that um, she could end up in the situation where she could be trapped forever uh, with no control over her environment. Uh, That's a great reversal. And then the parallels with the lack of control that these people give to their victims versus her disorder. A plus. Um, tell me about developing this story with Clyde, because this is a new one. This is, this is one that that he brought to you.
1: Yeah, again, uh, based on a married couple uh, in England, um, and I can't remember if, the, if this was based on them. Um, they were serial killing people, in their home and a perfectly ordinary home in a perfectly ordinary neighborhood and I can't i'd have to ask clive it, it may be that she was a nurse and he was a carpenter. But or maybe clive made that up, but his original concept was that they were keeping these bodies on the brink of death in their walls and floors and ceilings and we would never and she she's the nurse. So she had that expertise, and he's a carpenter, so he had that expertise. And that we, in his original conception, we would never find out why they were doing it, only that it began with their own children. Now, that's based on the British couple, that the first people they killed were their kids. Mm. What then Adam Simon and I developed further was the protagonist of Jenna. Mm. And some, uh, uh, and I wanted to do kind of a Janet, a Marion Crane uh, from Psycho type situation about a girl on the run, because I think it's a good, and I read one review of this movie saying that that it played initially a little more like an Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode, which I took as a compliment, though the review was a scathing negative review that was not a good thing in their mind although i'm thinking why is that a bad thing you
0: know it's
1: not a bad thing at all (laughs) you know it's like anyway and 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 develop this is a really important kind of question because we had the basic concept of sam and ellie in the house and we had the concept of jenna um, and I knew I wanted to do the misophonia thing, which is the hatred of sound because I have that myself. And I'd never seen that before. And I thought it was a good way to depict a, a highly sensitive person that isn't autistic or is doesn't have a sensory integration disorder per se. Although it may be that's what mis- misophonia is. They don't really know. Um, and we knew that she was gonna end up at this house. And we knew that she, she was going to bond with this guy named Gavin, and you were going to think that somehow he was coming to the rescue, but he'd already been buried. We had all that, but what we didn't have was the ending of that particular tale. And Adam Simon, in particular, was really struggling with it because it, it was a it was becoming a, a damsel in distress story. And what was going to happen? Was she going to get away? Was she going to was she going to tell on them? Were they gonna be busted? Would she get caught and buried? And it truly wasn't until one of those things where I was on the phone, Adam was in LA, I was in Santa Fe on a Sunday afternoon. And I said, what if she went back? Right. And that kind of stopped Adam. And it was the first time I think that he became fully engaged because it then became a challenge as a writer. Wow, what do you mean? there's no way she can go back. And I'm like, it's kind of the only way it can end. Right. But how was that going to work? And who's going to believe that? And it was Adam that then came back and surprised me with the concept that Jenna's trauma at school was her own doing and that she was tormented by, and he had based it on this real life case of a, of a teenage girl who convinced her boyfriend to commit suicide via text, but, uh, which is a well-known story. Yeah. And I was shocked by that and I almost rejected it. I'm like, this is a little too scandalous, like, but it, but it all kind of worked. And yeah. so it was this piecing together. And then I remember when we wrote up the outline for that story and turned it into the studio, I was pretty sure that they were gonna look at the ending and go, huh? No, but they loved it and it's a good ending. You know, it's and it is really the only way it could end was her going back. Right. And so it, took a, it was a long journey from the conception of the story to what it became.
0: Right. And, and I think what's, what's really um, kind of interesting too about this character and what makes her such an int- interesting character is because, you know, you have so much sympathy for her early on you know, and then uh, it is a big turn. I will admit it's, um, I'll give you some insight into when we were watching the movie, um, which I think was a week ago, Saturday night. But uh, when we sat down and watched the movie, when when the first story kind of cuts off and goes to the other one, I remember turning and looking at my wife and being like, well, that's a weird ending (laughs) because I didn't know at that point it was gonna weave back. And then I was like, I don't know about that. And then it was funny because when it all came back, I was like, Oh, I see, I see what's going on here. And that's another thing of the um, some of the tricks you guys are playing um, with this. Now, adapting books of blood into a story has a very a couple really interesting tricks too. Um, and and you said it earlier when you were talking about the story. The story is mostly mood and tone. That's it's setting up the tone of these six books. And um but there is a story there with the blood and the writing on the walls and the things like that. And so you very smartly came up with this concept of uh, which is not in the story of, of Simon um being um a charlatan at first. Um,
1: well he is a, he is in the story though. He's a fraud in the story.
0: Oh yeah, that's true. He's a fraud and yeah, it's not as clear, though, is it? Or is...
1: Well, to my recollection, I mean, it's not
0: a plot. Right, it's not a plot point that moves it right. up.
1: But it is an older woman who fell in love with this young charlatan who ends up getting written on by the dead who are kind of pissed off at him. Right. Like, that. that's all there. Yes. She, she Mary doesn't have a kid in, that died and all that stuff, though. That's new.
0: Right. Which is the next thing I was going to talk about because I think that was a smart arc and came up with one with one of the creepiest scenes in the movie is when when the dead son comes back. Which was, you know, very eerie and um, I think a fear that parents obviously that parents the, the losing a child thing is is brutal and so the idea that that one would speak to you in that way is terrifying so that's good stuff. But so I thought that was a really good way that you amplified that. But what I, what I think is really cool is, is that um, not only we already talked about where you structured it and that was cool, but adding that arc, I think it gives a certain, there's obviously a ton of weight to the story, but it gives it even more weight, which drives, um, it gives Mary more of a, uh, more of a arc moving forward. And, and the actress, the player did a great job, both, um you know i think really brought to life that that whole scene but i think um because it's the only part of the film that's based on what clive actually wrote um it's the chance that we got to see of you guys adapting the story and 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 it being very faithful was was something that i think fans can feel really good about you know Mm-hmm. So, did you go into that one feeling like this has to, this has to remind fans that that we're fans too? Was that a concern? Well, it's.
1: I think we picked it because it was the origin story of the book, um, and I liked. I, I love grifter stories, and that's why I think I seized on that aspect of the story about a charlatan who grifts a grieving mother. Mm-hmm. who is a scientific-minded person but emotionally damaged and wanting to believe. And I I also, you know, James, the great James Randi, the great skeptic, just passed away a couple weeks ago, and I'll never fr- forget a, a tale he told in a real-life experience about how he was able to fool a bunch of scientists under controlled conditions into thinking that he had psychic powers.
0: Mm-hmm
1: or maybe they were testing Yuri Geller and he was struck by the fact that scientists could be fooled by magic tricks too even under controlled conditions so that informed to me part of the story i wanted to see if this scientist scientist who wanted to believe could be fooled um but really it's a very hardcore barker story and you know in writing the screenplay when it came time for the 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 dead to surround simon i just cut and pasted the description from the story and put it into the screenplay because it it read great but when <laughs> the trick was when we were coming having to film it it's like what are these dead people going to look like you know like what does this mean exactly that they have uh, idiot gawping idiot faces it, you know which is one of the descriptions from the book yeah. i don't you know so sometimes taking those uncanny things on the page and Making the literalizing them as imagery is tricky, and I I called Clive from Nova Scotia a few times about the dead sequence, trying to figure out what they were going to look like exactly, mm-hmm. and you know, and without it being cheesy. I'm not sure. We may have succeeded. We may not. Depends on
0: it works was... for me. But I'll tell you, it, and it's funny because I'm trying to focus on the page, just cause being the writer that I am. But since you are the director, <laughs> it. It is interesting to, it is a very hard thing to do with Clive's work. I think even for Clive, that's one of the things that's so magical about the three films that he made is that um, it's so hard to take, You and we're lucky because he's a painter and we can see a lot of his visions and his drawings and these things. So we can see these things, but to translate that to film is not the easiest no it's not Correct. it's really it's
1: really not you know and um, it was tricky and if one thing if you define the books of blood stories it's their originality there are no vampires or werewolves to be found you know the monsters are utterly original um, the and the way the dead are described is is you know i didn't want them to look like not, like zombies or that they just crawled out of the earth. So we went after this. Um there's this really frightening movie that everyone should watch called Tourist Trap. It was from the, the 1970s, late 70s, stars Chuck Connors. And it's the scary, to me, the scariest mannequin movie ever made. Hmm. And I thought, what if these dead things look like mannequin, living mannequins? And that's kind of what we went, what we went with. Just because it was a I'd never seen it before. Um, and and a, now, of course, I wanna make Night of the Mannequins into a movie. <laughs> <laughs> ah, uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, yes, I was, we wanted to be faithful to the core components of that story, um, but it had to be expanded b- because the story itself is quite short.
0: Right, right, well, you know, it's it's, you know, the, the thing about Clive's work, and that's one of the reasons why Hellraiser, it's like most people don't even know anything about Pinhead, but the imagery of him yes. is something that, you know, a lot of times you have to explain to people like what he really is or like, you know, why he is. And then you're like, yeah, just read Hellbound Heart. You should just read <laughs> it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but um, you know, we, we're, we're lucky that Clive
1: made that movie. Um, God, we are, yes. Because it is it is the purest filmed version of his work. Um, well, you know, it just is. And it has terrifying imagery in it. I mean, you know, there's a shot of a creature coming down a hallway toward camera that I'll never forget. It's very Lovecraftian. It's just yeah. you don't even know what the fuck it is. Is it a spider? Is it a... What is that? And, you know, he was able to... And Pinhead, Pinhead, we talked a lot about Pinhead, Clive and I, and wh- he was very um, proud of the way he approached the character and having the actor speak with a flat affect. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think about it, is one of the creepy things about Pinhead is the way he talks with just nothing. Like, a you know, almost robotic, um, which is kind of chilling, almost psychopathic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, yeah. well, he designed everything, everything in that movie. Like, it's all unadulterated, Clive.
0: Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of Lord of Illusions. I think Lord of Illusions is extremely underrated. Well,
1: and Nightbreed, you know, if, if fans out there have not gotten their hands on the director's cut, because mm-hmm. the, the movie that came out was Massacre by the producers. Yeah. And there's there's a director's cut on DVD you can
0: get. I even uh, at the Lovecraft Film Fest in Portland got to see the Cabal cut too, which was interesting as well. I think the director's cut is, is a slightly better than the Cabal cut, but, uh, (laughs) um, and I'm not knocking Nightbreed. It's just, um, uh, I just have a particular affection for Lord of Illusion. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, and I think it's great that you're having these conversations with Clive too, because, and that you're recording them, um, I know josh olson kind of did the same thing with harlan ellison and and um you know was able to uh preserve a lot of of the knowledge that um that died with harlan and um you know better him than me to uh <laughs> you know I'm glad somebody did it you know well,
1: or peter bogdanovich with orson wells yeah you know um and i'm not saying i'm the The guy with Clive, but I just know if you transcribe these conversations, which is mostly Clive talking. Yeah, um, they're, they're fascinating. And I'm hoping he'll, you know, allow that at some point.
0: Yeah. Well, um, so we have one story idea left, which is the Chernobyl supernatural storyline with the gangsters and um, I love the concept of the supernatural Chernobyl. Um, I feel like you could do, you could do an anthology show about that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, it's a a wonderful concept. How did that concept come together? That was,
1: again, that was Clive and I talking in this case on the phone. Um, And he had an idea about some kind of, um, and he might have even tied it to the Book of Blood that maybe someone's searching for the Book of Blood and it's deep in a neighborhood um, where some at the ground zero. um, I made the Book of Blood literally ground zero. Mm. Um, I, you know, one of my writing regrets was um, that's a big idea that was underdeveloped and really serves as a framing device in the movie um, that I think it could have been its own movie um, Mm. because The concept originally, and it was more fleshed out at one time where the deeper you got into the neighborhood, the more frightening things became the closer to ground zero that you got. But I was running out of real estate at some point and I I had to make a decision on scaling back some stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that that story was just I wished it could be developed further and maybe it will be at some point because it's a good it's a cool idea of forget a haunted house what about a whole neighborhood that that people just think has gone through urban decay, but in fact, something else happened. And it's filled with ghosts and, you know, people brave deciding to brave by going, you know, brave going into the neighborhood.
0: Well, you know, um, that is, yeah, I think, but you have time right i mean you have time to do this like the concept (laughs) is out there so and uh uh more people go to hulu and uh watch this movie uh um and maybe watch it multiple times get the numbers up there we'll we'll make sure well
1: that's the thing you know it's it's really you know i think it's i'm told it's doing pretty well um and And, uh, but it needs to continue to do well for us to do more of these things. And that that's always been the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know Clive and I've been already been talking and we have, we know what volume two would be, and we're, we're ready to go. Um, you know, I have a question for you. Sure. So, you know, I try not to read reviews, um, because if you're going to look at the good ones, you have to look at the bad ones. Right. Uh but you know my in my Star Trek days, I I'm used to mixed reviews because mm-hmm. Star Trek is different things to different people and you're never going to satisfy everybody.
0: Star Trek is actually worse for that now than it's ever been. Um the the negative fan community for Star Trek drives me nuts. Um and it's funny because there's people who like there's all these fake articles out there saying you know discovery has been canceled already and blah 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 and it's actually gotten very 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 bad um and it's hard for fans because we end up trying to defend the shows a lot of times and uh so i don't know if that's your question that you're going for well so well and
1: i'm going to books of blood which is clive barker is different things to different people and I wonder, you know, I've read some negative reviews, and there are plenty of them. There are some positive ones, but it's mixed. And some people really hate this movie. You seem to like it. And it, what's weird to me as a filmmaker is, and but I have to go back to my Trek days. The very thing things that some people like about the movie are the things some people hate about the movie.
0: Right, and, well, and, and I will and, tell you, I will be honest with you, Brandon, part of the reason why I reached out to you and was very excited to talk to you is because I had two arguments about this movie, um, where, <laughs> um, and I got so into defending the movie because I was like, no, you're missing out. And I started talking about the structure and the things that I liked. And then I was like, I was like, you know what? I, I would really like to talk to the guy who wrote this. <laughs> Because I was trying to tell, um, you know, some of these people that I was arguing with, like, you know, I had one person just say to me, like, oh, it was boring. And I didn't, and I was like, could not get my head around the fact And I thought to myself, they had to have been looking at their phone and not paying attention to the nuances. And then when I started arguing with this person about, well, this is happening in the structure and that's happening in the structure. And they were, they literally told me, I'm going to have to go back and watch it again because I did not see that. And then I was thinking to myself, yes, I don't think you were paying attention. And um, you're the director, so you don't have to, I'll do this for you. <laughs> I will evangelize on this movie because um, as a Clive Barker fan, and I admit it because a lot of the last couple movies I wasn't too into and and to be honest, I wasn't a fan of the Scarlet Gospels. I, I, um, I don't think Clive was ready to be back out there yet. Um, it, and I wasn't a fan of that. So And I was on the record. I've written a review, so I can't back away from that. But um, I was ready to be negative at, at, at any stretch of this. And um, partially because I had read a bad review before I watched it. And I don't know if it's because my bar was set low or whatever, but I also, because I'm a fan of your work, I trusted you. And I said, no, I got to watch this. And I got to watch it for myself because I've always been a fan of your writing. And um, as the movie went on, I I really found myself enjoying the structure and enjoying, you know, and then the more in this, and you'll see this, if you read my book reviews, you know, I like books that, I like them more when I write the review. There's sometimes when I read a book, I'm not that into it. And then I start writing the review and I start thinking about it. There was a a, a novel by a non-binary author, River Solomon, a Generation Starship book called the Unkindness of Ghosts that I read earlier in the year. And I did not like it at all through the first 75% of reading it. In fact, I was ready to trash it. And then when I started writing the book review, I realized all the things, some things that I missed. And I ended up going back and rereading the book and ended up giving it five stars. (laughs) And, but what I had to come to, and I'm an astronomy nerd. That's one of the reasons why I'm jealous of you working on cosmos. I had to eject part of my thing was the book was not really in space space was a metaphor, right? And so there was no attention to detail on how the ship worked, how it survived, any of that stuff. And I was so annoyed by that, the first reading of it, that I couldn't see the book for what it was, which was a a metaphor for the antebellum South. Mm. So when I went back and and kind of checked myself at the door, I had a, a better experience. And one of the things I liked about the Books of Blood is it's a movie that I thought about long after I turned it off. And I always, every day, I whenever I watch something, and the next day I write a little review. And so for Books of Blood, when I was sitting there the next day writing my feelings on the Books of Blood, I was I, I was more impressed with it the more I thought about it. And I think that's something that you should be really proud of and something that I think works with the movie. And I think over time, when people Uh, you know, this is a movie that I think over time people will see is, is fulfilling Clive's vision, you know, you know, that's just my personal feeling. I, I did a lot of talking there and I'm. No, no, I appreciate it. And
1: look, it's, it's Clive's vision. It's, and it's my vision to some degree as well, because one can only interpret um, to some degree and bring, you're always going to bring some of your own stuff. And, you know, I, you know i have a there's a lot of influences in this movie that are largely clive but there's some polanski repulsion stuff in there and there's some hitchcock in there and there's all sorts of influences in there cuz i'm a horror fan and um i brought everything to bear on this um if you watch the tv show salem it's a it's 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 a sensory overload for horror fans everything it, it's it's there's Dario Argento in there. There's everything is in that fucking show. Um
0: I love Salem and I was really bummed that it didn't go further.
1: But yeah, well, it's fine. We got we told our story. But you know what, what's up, uh, you know, it, it's upsetting to read that the movie's boring because the the one thing the cardinal sin of any, of any movie to me is is if if it's boring. So of course I'm mortified to hear that people are bored by the movie. And I think the post mortem for me is maybe people expected something more in your face, but uh, it's
0: there. But it's there. You got you got the, the 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 people in the walls. You got the the books of blood story. It's there. It's all there. I don't think it's your fault, personally. Uh, I you know I'm a defender of the movie.
1: Well, thanks. Did you write a review?
0: Um, not for my blog, but I did on Facebook, but, um, which is and Letterboxd, which is where I write all my film stuff. I keep track of all the films that I watch. And believe me, when I do my best of the year at the end of the year, it'll be on there. And, 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 and um, and, unless nine really amazing movies come out between now and then, but, um, you know, uh, it should be there. But I, I think yeah. one, one of the reasons why I wanted you know to do this interview and to to talk to you is because um I wanted people to because I think sometimes look there are are books and movies that I think work better for writers than they do for the general audience and I do think that some of the best magic tricks that you're pulling in this movie are ones that should Ideally sing to writers because you're doing really clever things with the writing. That being said, I think there's plenty that works for it. Um, Of course, you know, like all my comments and all my favorite things about this movie are almost all on the page. Um, And it's not to say that I don't like the execution of the film because I do um, because I haven't read the screenplay. So my interpretation of the writing is based entirely on finished product. But as a horror nerd, like you know, I—I
1: I, uh, I, well, that's what I guess that's what why I'm so bothered by you know the people who didn't like it because I made it for them, you know. I'm I'm a horror, you know. My first love of the genre goes back to horror, and you know, this was made with love.
0: Well, will we brand as a,
1: horror, as a horror fan. So
0: But remember, uh, remember, the thing was universally hated when it came out. And it took time for uh, well, for, for the not by me. Yeah. Well, I know. <laughs> that
1: fucking movie was a masterpiece from day one.
0: I well, I personally agree with you, and I'm a huge defender of um eventually uh Jeremy Robert Johnson and I have threatened to do a whole podcast about Prince of Darkness because we- oh.
1: Prince of Darkness is great.
0: Yeah. Um, it has
1: one of the scariest images I've ever seen, which is some kind of entity walking out of the house, it's a videotape of something emerging yeah. from the. You remember this?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Some
1: oh, Paul yeah. thing fucking My
0: favorite gym. movie of, of all time is Prince of Darkness. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Well, Carpenter, Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, like Carpenter was doing some Lovecraftian stuff. Oh, that that I think is better than anything that's been put on film.
0: uh, Based on his actual work, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, no, Uh, no. no. I'm glad you like that movie, because I really love it, too.
0: Well, the thing about Prince of Darkness is, um, uh, too, is that uh, uh, something that relates to what we're talking about is that, for me, Prince of Darkness, most people don't remember Prince of Darkness and Hellraiser came out back-to-back weeks. Oh, and um two of my all-time favorite horror movies and what's funny is i was um 13 years old uh 1987 when they came out and uh i always tell the story is that hellraiser came out week one and prince of darkness came out the next week and i convinced my father who's a political science professor and not into genre stuff at all i said because he knew how because i was reading clive barker and i had all these clive barker books and I said, dad, it's my favorite writer. And he wrote this movie, it's R-rated. Can you please take me to see Hellraiser? And he said, sure. And he took me. And halfway through the movie, he leaned over to me and he said, your sister's taking you to the next one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's
0: great. <laughs> and uh, so the next one was Prince of Darkness. And my um, 19-year-old sister took me to that one. But. Uh, it was hilarious because one of the things that I thought was great was he didn't say these sadomasochistic demons from hell are something you should not be watching. He just said somebody else. I don't want to see this. <laughs> yeah, Somebody yeah. else. Although he did take me to Maximum Overdrive and I still feel bad about that. Um, <laughs> but Brandon, this was great. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, uh, but I definitely would love to um, have you on my Star Trek podcast. And some- yeah, yeah.
1: Of course, I would. That would be. This is great.
0: Yeah, and we don't get into nitty gritty about individual episodes on that. I like to talk about storytelling and arcs, as you can see. Yeah. So the Star Trek one is just basically me. Well, it's also my Trojan horse because I'd love to write Star Trek novels, and and uh, <laughs> so I'm trying to convince people I know what I'm doing, but um, at, at the same time, like I. Uh, I am so impressed with so many of the arcs that 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 um, you guys produced and all the work that you guys that came out of the Berman era have gone on to do in other in other fields and other things. Um, and I know I saw recently um, one of your actors, uh, Robert Duncan McNeil said how um, Star Trek was and that era was like the best film school um that anyone could go to for directors for writers for and it really seems like you guys have all come out of it um just really incredible craftsmen and so on that note i do want to say one more time to anyone who's made it this far listening that (laughs) blood needs your support because we want to see more of these we want to see um because i you said Clive had 75 stories that
1: oh i that's a rough estimate there yeah. but there are there's a we have a long list of of they're not fully written stories but they're pretty fleshed out concepts
0: right and we want to see them
1: yes you want to see more of those
0: <laughs> yeah and um and you're still um obviously working on Cosmos too and
1: um yeah cosmos season 3 is airing right now on fox tuesdays at 8 uh, except for this Tuesday, obviously, uh, but uh, yeah, there's, uh, I think we've aired less than half the episodes and they're on Hulu the next day. So uh, you can watch all of it on, half of it on Hulu now. And then uh, the Orville season three, we've yet to resume production, but um, sometime next year that will come out.
0: Yeah. And I love the Orville as well. Um, although I do find it to be a very cold take every time someone says Orville is the best Star Trek show on TV. I, really, uh, um, I think it's it's an insult to both franchises because I think that Orville is such, such a, a great piece of work on its own. And so I just want to put that out there. Um, they're just
1: talking about. I think it. it, I think they're really talking about the style of storytelling, meaning the standalone anthological aspect of it.
0: Which Star Trek is going to get back to with Strange New Worlds?
1: Yeah, yeah. But but it's it definitely has more of the uh, '90s uh, ethos. Is probably what people are talking about. But the new Star Treks are they're Star Treks for today. I mean, there's. Star Trek it's so hard man I and I just know from experience you just can't win you, you can't. can't you you know it's like you watch discovery it's you know amazing looking show you talk about jealousy I'm like how much money do they have <laughs> <laughs> how are they doing all this stuff right. i just well, had people in rooms
0: well and with the orville i wanted to i do want to give you props too for the storyline with the um with the gender of the yeah, yeah yeah that like for a show that's so comedic um that was a tearjerker and just and you guys did w- by at the end having the ending that nobody wanted you know uh was really bold bold writing and um i know i really sang the praises of the orville for that well
1: that um, it's funny you mention that because that was uh, an episode deeper in the season one and we moved it up to episode three because we knew that was the show and if if people had to know pretty early this isn't a satire mm-hmm. this isn't galaxy quest you know we're we're doing real dramatic storylines here and people accepted it hmm all so right i'm glad man. to hear that <laughs> All right. By the way, speaking of reviews, Orville got brutalized by the critics. It was so depressing. It's just and um including by a lot of genre people. They're just like, this show doesn't work. And I just remember the Rotten Tomatoes score with the critics was like super low, but the fan was super high. And I real and I just yeah, the fans like this show.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing is is that i got really annoyed with and that's the whole thing with the fan community is they started to pit the franchises against each other and i was like no dude we get to have both and that's yeah
1: there's room for both yeah that's the that's the best point i've heard there's and how lucky are we as genre fans to be first of all working in the genres we love and that it's gone so mainstream and there's so much of it You know well and And you're doing an important service in your work because as i was saying when we first started talking you know the days of wandering around a a genre bookstore and just sniffing out what's cool are gone so what you have are being online and discovering um, different titles that lead you to other things that lead you to like your blog
0: Mm
1: Um, and I like reading reviews of books. Um, and you have a great one. Your, your reviews are very good. I wish they were a little longer.
0: Uh, um, well, sometimes I, it depends on the book, but I will say um, I believe in the book bookosphere. And if I want people to read my books um, and go out and get them, then I need to support. And, like, and also what I learned by writing the reviews, and I've got over a thousand reviews on my blog now, is that um, I? That's the way I digest the most from the work that I'm that I'm reading. Is if I if I spend the time to write about it and think about it, yeah. then then I'm getting more out of it. So I appreciate the kind words. That's. Uh, no, I mean, look, that, that's how else are we going to find? There's some great
1: horror being written. There's some, and it's how how else do you find it? Yeah. No, you it's know? true.
0: No, and this year has been amazing for horror. Um, Between um, Mallerman's follow-up to Bird Box was incredible. Um, Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, The Only Good Indian, The Loop by Jeremy Robert Johnson.
1: Did you you read The Hollow Places? Uh,
0: I have not gotten to that one yet. I've also heard Ring Shout is supposed to be incredible. I'm getting to that soon. Um, and then of course, in science fiction, I'm very excited for Kim Stanley Robinson's new book, The Ministry of oh, yeah.
1: Well, and also uh, the, the book probably that came out this year that is just mind-blowingly relevant is Survivor's Song. Paul Tremblay, yep. Uh, and it, you you read that book and you're like, this is this is happening right now, all of these things. It doesn't read like a work of fiction. The virus is much worse. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, but there's so much good new stuff and there's so much great classic stuff. I saw Ramsey Campbell came out with a new book. He's one of my all-time favorites. I haven't read it yet. Have you?
0: I have not read. No, I read, he had a short story collection a couple years ago that I read, but um, he's on, there's a Facebook group for horror writers that he's absolutely hilarious on. Um, oh, what's that
1: called? I'm going to write that down.
0: It's horrorwriters.net, but there's a troll I think it's Horror Writers Net, I think, is the name of the group, but uh, Campbell's on there and there's a troll on that page who is super vicious to everyone and Ramsey Campbell just destroys him all the time. <laughs> and, uh, cause this guy likes to to diminish everyone who criticizes him and he can't diminish Ram- Ramsey Campbell. <laughs> no,
1: that's for damn sure. Yeah. Um. Um
0: and you know so it's funny because like i stuck around that group just to read ramsey's posts uh because he's so good on there but um but brandon that was incredible um we should definitely talk again yeah
1: just email me about the star trek uh one yeah. this probably- is refreshing because you're, you're coming at this from such a uh, the writerly angle i really appreciate that
0: well yeah and um yeah i'll do i probably really um well, whenever your schedule works out, we'll talk about it. Whenever it works for you, I'll make it happen. But um, yeah, I had a, yeah. I had a really fun talk with uh, Robert Hewitt-Wolf too. And I think he was excited that, that I was drilling down on arcs the whole time. Like, yeah, let's do he's, this.
1: He's a great guy.
0: Yeah. And um, I really appreciate uh, your time and really hope everyone looks at uh, Books of Blood.
1: Cool.